number 772. We're delighted, of course, to be able to come together this evening as I look over this assembly tonight and appreciate the healthfulness that is the blessing for each of us and always the mindfulness that's ours to reflect upon those whose condition is not as they wish it were. And we certainly are very earnest in prayer on their behalf that that will soon not be the case. The lesson tonight, as you've already noticed, has to do with a particular word in the English language. As I begin the lesson, I'm hopeful that it will be a benefit for several reasons and on several levels for each of us to give some reflection to what may be such an innocent-looking word. The word is and. Three letters, A-N-D. This introductory slide is one that will invite us to, first of all, highlight the matchless and superseding brilliance of the gospel. And, of course, that gospel involves those particular truths concerning that which Christ endured, namely, His death, His burial, His resurrection and His glorious ascension to the right hand of the Father. And yet, as those matters are put before us, we appreciate that the particular message of truth that God has bequeathed and revealed to us is a message that involves language, letters and words that you and I have come to appreciate, the meanings of which we study and implant in our thinking. At this point, might we remember... In Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, aren't we reminded that every word of God is tried? And that word brings the following meaning. To say that it's tried is to say that it's pure. It is to say that every word that was originally given was that which the God of heaven chose to to make available. That means in regard to the words of the Bible... That will, in fact, be a bit of our focus tonight to at least think about a word in particular. In 2 Samuel 23, 2, David thus made this exclamation. He was able to speak about the word and say it as follows. As the Spirit had made available, thy word was in my tongue. Well, so it is that the God of heaven has given to us the words of the Bible. One of the most powerful appreciations about various translations is to appreciate the character, the philosophy, if you will, that goes into that translation. You and I lift high the banner of those words that God revealed. We don't want some man's interpretation. That's not what we're interested in. You'll see about the bottom of that slide then, the first exposure to the word and, at least in our lesson tonight. We use that word so often in English. We employ it almost at times without thought. It's almost a subconsciously utilized word, it would at least seem. And yet, as we open the pages of the Word of God, we will find usages of that word and that point us in the following direction. First, I wanted you to think with me about just the common, ordinary English usage of this very common word, and. And so I chose a few scenarios with the hope that these will at least bring to our thought how easy it is to use this word. A little boy, after school one day, his parents ultimately end up asking him, Son, what did you do this afternoon? I chose the name Tommy for him, but it could be any number of other appropriate names. And Tommy makes the statement, I played football with Billy. 
and rode bicycles with Kevin. Now, isn't it true that Tommy made two statements, two activities in which he engaged, and of these he made note to his parents, and he pointed out, I did play football. Again, I did that with Billy, but that isn't the only thing I did. Without going into all those details, he simply utilizes the word and, joins together these two thoughts, these two statements, for he in addition says that I played football with Kevin. And the parents appreciate and understand very easily that those two thrusts and those two activities were joined together in the description of Tommy. But look at what else is easily to be noted. A person upon returning from the grocery store is thus asked, What did you purchase? I purchased milk and bread and orange juice. The person did not get one item, did not get half a dozen items. The person purchased three, exactly three items, and they were particularly these, the very ones we've listed. But notice the word and joined them together, in this case three elements, and it did so by noting they were all members or, in fact, presentations on the things that were purchased at the store. It's not that the person, again, obtained one or two or any number other than three. And the word and joined them together, connecting them in light of the fact that they were obtained. What about the next one? This one, a menu. What did you have for breakfast? Some person perhaps in a bountiful fashion, is able to exclaim, eggs, sausage, hash browns, biscuits, and gravy. Five elements joined together with the word and. The person did not again have zero items. The person did not have again any number other than those food items that were listed. The word and has occupied a place in light of joining them together identically equal in light of the object discussed. Maybe one final observation. This is certainly something frequently happening at Tennessee Tech and institutions of learning all around the world, in fact. What courses are you signed up for? And someone in response says, I'm signed up for history and English, calculus, and physics. The word and has joined together these ideas and the person is currently registered for all four of them. Well, maybe we've said enough, not highlighting anything particularly new, but just reminding us of how easy, how common it is to use the word and to link together ideas, phrases, sentiments in light of the object involved under the discussion. At the bottom of that slide, I've asked you to notice the definition of the word. The word and, in fact, borrowed directly from a rather highly recognized dictionary, presents it as a word used to join elements of equal grammatical rank. You and I grow up utilizing the word and and have little difficulty appreciating that sense and that sentiment. Now you might wonder, how does this help us with the Bible? Well, the next slide will move us in this direction, that not only is and a commonly utilized word for you and for me, it's also a rather commonly occurring word in the Bible. 
On this slide, you might notice some statistics, some numbers that may at first sight appear a bit shocking. In the King James Version of the Bible, the word and occurs roughly 51,700 times. 51,700 occurrences roughly in the King James Bible of the word and. Now, I'd be quick to say that as you compare that to the total number of verses in the Bible, which is about 31,102, that means on average the word and occurs about five times every three verses. That's a lot of occurrences. That is, in fact, a very large number of usages of the word and. And may I be quick to say that you and I might at least be quick to appreciate, well, that King James is in English. Maybe the original Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic would have a different sense, and thus maybe the translators is who supplied the majority of those usages of the word and. But look at what comes next. You see, if you go back to the original languages... I would, in fact, at least at this point, just invite you to note that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as well as the actual Greek presentation of the New, that Greek translation has almost 56,000 usages of the word and. It's even more than, than in English. By now, I hope we've at least been able to see that the word and is a word God chose to use frequently. And he chose to use it in rather dramatic fashion. May I then say, at least in regard to that last matter, if you compare the usages of the word and in Greek to the total number of words in the Bible, you'll find that on average about one out of every 14 words in the Bible is the word and. You might want to think about that with me. Every 14th word on average is the word and. That again signifies, does it not, that in the infinite wisdom of God, He joined together on lots of occasions things of equal grammatical thrust, and He did so to present the truth which He desired the human family to not only appreciate, but that they would implement into their lives and their hearts. That large number of occurrences brings you to the bottom of that slide that perhaps brings one final observation. That word and... In Greek, now obviously in Greek it's not and, it's chi, K-A-I, or kappa, alpha. With that stated, you might then take note, in Greek that word means exactly the same, and it has the same function, and it has the same thrust as our word and does in English. So it is exactly the same point. Our God has joined together on many occasions matters of equal rank and thrust, and has presented truth to you and me using that very means. With all of that as a background, and a bit of a powerful introduction, I would hope, why don't we now turn to at least a small, small sampling of verses. And after the numbers we've just noted, you know why it's a small sampling. We're not going to look at 55,000 occurrences tonight. We wouldn't get that done in any short amount of time. But could we select a few and at least utilize those matters to help us see that sometimes the human family has gone astray in taking things that God has joined together and man has tried to separate them. He has tried to join them in sunder in such a way that they do not have the equality of rank 
that God joined them with. Now, man, of course, makes a dramatic problem when he does this. He alters and changes the Word of God, and that's something nobody has any authority to do because every Word of God is tried. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. You'll notice then on this slide, I have asked you to notice these. Why don't we begin in Luke 22.8? A rather gentle introduction to, to the usage of and, but isn't it true there that our Master was arriving at near the close of His life in the flesh, and as He was making ready to celebrate the Passover. He gave instructions to Peter and John to go and make ready for that location wherein the Passover might be celebrated. Jesus used the word and. It wasn't enough for Peter to go. It wasn't enough for John to go by himself. The Lord commissioned both of them. He commissioned them in light of the object of making ready those final preparations for the celebration of the Passover with him and the rest of those apostles. Now that usage of the word and reminds us, doesn't it, that there the Lord sent a pair. You and I know that we have been sent today, and it's not just the elders nor the preacher, but all of us have been sent in light of this particular passage. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Now that initial commissioning, borrowing the language of Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, that commission, of course, initially stated to those apostles, of course, the artifact, the message of it is given to you and to me as well to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19. And so today, you and I then take seriously the fact of doing all of those things that God has thus commissioned us to do. It isn't enough to do one of them because they all have been joined. Look at the next observation, perhaps the next example for our consideration. This one, again, a rather innocent statement, the opening verse of the First Thessalonian letter. As Paul had thus addressed the church in Thessalonica, he made careful observation that Paul and Silas and Timothy send greetings. It wasn't just one of them present, and it wasn't just one of them who had kind and wishful thoughts to share with the Thessalonian congregation. It was all of them. They sent these matters jointly, if you please. Now, we are under the impression, and we appreciate very highly, that that joining reminds us of the unison of work. That doesn't teach us this. Here at the Pippin Church of Christ... We understand we have bonded our talents and our appreciations together under the banner of service to Jesus Christ our Lord. And we work together to carry forth the gospel in this community, in our lives, and in the ways in which we can carry it. But it again is not something that is just singly presented to each of us. We all lovingly and joyously strive to do the same. That... Next example, the third one on that list, reminds us of a question that was asked. This time taken from Mark 13, 3. After Jesus had taught a particularly strong message, 
You might remember that as they were leaving the, the Jerusalem complex, the disciples brought to his attention, look at the beautiful temple and the stones that comprise it. And the Lord in reply said, The day's coming. Not one stone will be left on another one. Not one. Well, that sufficiently brought questions into the mind of four of the apostles, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, that after the Lord had ascended to the Mount of Olives, they privately came to Him, the text tells us, and they asked Him this question, Lord, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of Thy coming and of the end of the age? Did you know they asked a pair of questions, not just one. They asked two of them. And in the fact that they asked two questions reminds us then of the right division of the Word of God. We then ought to look among the Lord's answers for two answers, not just one. The human family today is under a tremendous confusion as it relates to the Lord's answer to those questions. In fact, if you pay much attention to the writings of very many people, those today who are quick to pronounce the end of the world is about to come because we're seeing rumors of wars and various times and famines and earthquakes, they make a tremendous mistake. Jesus was answering two questions, not one. Rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines was in His answer to the first question. When will these stones be torn down off which this temple is made? He was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And things like famines and earthquakes and rumors of wars would be signs indicative of the near coming of that event which occurred in A.D. 70. Many, many centuries ago at this point. The second question they asked him about the end of time. What about your next coming? Now you and I know that was not specifically tailored to the destruction of Jerusalem. But when our precious Savior returns again, and with regard to that one, He said, there are no signs. There won't even be one sign given. You can't look for rumors of wars. You can't look for famines and earthquakes, for they're not going to signal the, what I'm talking about now. Some have acclaimed the single most misunderstood chapter in the entire Bible is Matthew 24, where Jesus was answering those questions. Man likes to mix up the answers, and he likes to, in fact, assert that all of it has to do with the end of time, and Jesus specifically said it didn't. You and I thus pay a great attention to the fact the word and mentioned two questions, not one. And the Lord gave two answers, not one. And therefore, when we rightly divide that context and appreciate the thrust the Lord was making, we begin to see one more time the usage of the word and. But the next example, the one that you'll notice, the admonition to Titus. In Titus 2 verse 15, the closing verse to that second chapter of that little three-chapter book, Paul, as he addressed to Titus, he said, These things speak and practice with all authority and admonition. And thus, Paul used the word and. It wasn't enough, you see, for Titus to be mindful of certain attributes of those commandments. He was expected to not only appreciate them, but to implement them into practice and to speak them with all authority. A preacher today, thus, should expect 
from the nature of God's deliverance to do the same. You can't pick and choose what God wants you to preach. It's the entire counsel of God. Acts 20, verse 27. Paul could say, I've kept back nothing that was profitable for you. And so isn't it true today that we desire the entire truth to be presented to us? It would be a rather terrible matter for it to be withheld here and to then have to face it on the day of judgment. And so Paul admonished Titus, even though he was positioned in the place he was on that island of Crete, and on that place there was to be an audience that would be challenging and difficult. They often would have little interest in what he had to say. You still preach it with all conviction and with all authority. Today you and I then desire and require a thus saith the Lord. We have no interest in human opinion. That's no substitute for the gospel. In Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9, there Jesus rather pointedly told them, when men teach for doctrines the commandments of men, instead of the Word of God, it leads to vain worship, and it leads to, of course, unsatisfied service to God. Thus it's true today that we base our interest on the authority of the Scriptures. What saith the Scriptures? That famous question of Romans 4 verse 3, doesn't it remind us that here was a very learned man named Paul? And yet when it came to addressing the questions and the matters that were of most needful import, he didn't return to his schooling. He did not return to the sayings of wisdom among the human family. He turned his attention to what saith the Scripture. And today, that ought to be the matter lifted so highly by any and all of us. What next might we note about and? There near the bottom of that slide, 1 Peter 2 verse 1. We see, do we not, that there were certain things that were to be eliminated from the Christian life. Notice again, as we learned earlier in the lesson tonight, we can't pick and choose out of them what we'd like to hold on to. Things like envyings, things like evil speakings, things like malice. That might be easier for some to eliminate than others, but it does not change the fact God demands all of us, whether it be hard, whether it be challenging or not, we have to give the effort and strive with the endeavoring to put all of them aside. Did you notice they're linked together by the word and? Maybe that word and reminds us then there are times when, in the New Testament especially, we come face to face with these remarkable lists. Lists. Sometimes they are lists that are good. These people are going to heaven. And other times it's lists of things that are ungodly. Those that do these things shall not inherit heaven. Perhaps Paul's the most famous for constructing these lists under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, a large number of things. And then he quickly ends it by saying, These will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, but they're all joined by and. We then have to see, I can't pick and choose out of them which ones I think are more needful, and I'll work on them. But I won't give so much attention to the others because I don't think that that one is as important. We make a grave mistake. It isn't up to you and me to think what's important or what's not. 
when the Lord joined them by the word and, He ranked them equally in terms of significance. And our thrust ought to be to appreciate that usage of the word and. The categories of sin in 1 John 2 verses 15 and 16. We remember how frequently in the Bible we see the implementation of this. John was able to write, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Given the fact that, again, they were joined together, you'll notice you and I then could appreciate the reality of sin following any one of those patterns. I could be given to the lust of the eyes. You and I can be given to the lust of the flesh. You and I can be given to the pride of life. All three are, of course, that which can prompt us to engage in what we ought not or to fail to engage in what we should. All three are wrong in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. Eve, you see, fell in light of all three of them. And the tempter tried to get Jesus with all three, but of course the Lord overwhelmed all three attempts in Matthew chapter 4. Maybe it is in that light. We can close that slide with Revelation twenty-two thirteen. In that rather interesting and rather commanding passage, we have upon the last page, perhaps, in your Bible and mine, that statement where Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. We remember how that He was the executor of the creation account, but He will also be the one who brings the close to the affairs of time. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. You'll notice three times the word and was used in that single verse. And three times it reminds us of the joining together in light of the person and character and efforts of the Master. But may I suggest to you that to say that the Bible has used and in this small numbering of ways only begs some more usages. Those which perhaps will take us to our lesson text of the night. You'll notice at the top of that slide, I'd be quick to say this. In the main, at least in the particular references that I checked, expositors seem to have no problem with every one of the occurrences we've noted so far. They can correctly identify, interpret, and present proper understanding concerning them and the usage of the word and. But for some very strange reason. They have problems with some of the ones we're now about to notice. And it's the same word. It carries the same thrust. It has the same power behind it. But of course we each know that often they're motivated by philosophical matters and they simply are unwilling to admit the thrust of and in some of these verses. Let's begin, for instance, in this one. In John 4 verse 24... When our Savior was giving His masterful exposition of worship, He said, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And as Jesus utilized the word and, of course, He joined together equally and with remarkable power the requirement of truth and the requirement of spirit. 
If worship lacks either one of them, that worship has thus fallen short of what God would have it to be. It must be in spirit, meaning our mind is engaged, our heart is passionately involved in that which we're doing, but it also must be guided by the nature of the truth of God. That is to say, it is by the authority of God that we do what we do in worship. If either one is lacking, then the word and has been overlooked, and we have thus fallen into error. But you see, that description of worship, as simple, as straightforward as it is, is one which some have chosen to overlook. For they have thus asserted that as long as you feel an emotional requirement and connection in worship, that would satisfy the nature of the truth part. That's a lie. That's not the same as truth. That is putting truth on a different level than what spirit is. And that thus doesn't qualify for the Lord's description and His definition. But not only that, look at how the matter becomes even worse. For example, in Romans 1.16, the subjects involved in the gospel, Paul, by power and majesty, said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There were those of Paul's day that were having a real struggle with this. For you see, they thought they were subjects of the gospel, but they didn't think the Gentiles should be. And in fact, a great deal of the New Testament is Paul wrestling with sometimes Jews who felt as if they had a head start toward heaven. And the Gentiles at best were far behind them. Paul said, the gospel of Christ is God's power to you, the Jew, but it's the same gospel to the Gentile. There was an equalness, there was an equality in the grammatical rank. It was easy for you and me to understand, but not so much in that day. They had a real problem at times understanding the equivalency and the equalness of the opportunity for the gospel. What about the matter of salvation? This one, there has been no small amount of volumes that men have written. Sometimes with the especial effort to remove the force of the word and. Let's try just a few of them. We noted one of them earlier in the lesson this evening from Mark 16, verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's what the Lord said. It isn't what you and I by ourselves have said. The Lord said it. And Jesus joined together belief and baptism with the word and, and yet there have been expositors almost without number who have endeavored to place the emphasis on belief, to highlight its necessity, to formulate a number of ways it can be expressed, and then to quickly, very quickly, set aside the requirement of baptism. But my friend, it just can't be so. Jesus joined them with the word and. No amount of writing on the part of men can ever take away the quality of their presentation, the necessity of each one of them with baptism following belief. Or what about the lesson text that was read in our hearing as Brother Lester read it from Acts 2.38? Here were a group of people gathered on Pentecost, and they were, of course, celebrating that, that ancient matter of Pentecost. And yet, as the Holy Spirit came upon those apostles, baptizing them appropriately, 
And Peter and the others began to preach in verse 14 of that chapter. What a masterful sermon it was. When he reached the conclusion, and every sermon will have a bit of a conclusion, and when Peter reached it, he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. Some of them were pricked in their heart. And you'll notice they ask a question. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Do for what? Do to rid ourselves of that which we've done. They had been convicted. They put to death the Son of God. And by inspiration, Peter said, Repent and be baptized. One more time, it is shocking to see the number of expositors who have endeavored at length to lay the emphasis on repentance perhaps even highlighting the significance of it and all the while duly sweeping under the rug, at least they think, the requirement of baptism. It can be a challenging thing to find a commentator, to find an expositor, to find an interpreter who does justice to and in Acts 2.38. Needless to say, we have learned about and so far, and it means exactly what it says. A person must repent, a person must also be baptized. The bottom thing on that slide is the passage we just highlighting, pointing out the nature of and in Acts 2, verse number 38. It is with all that in mind. Let's close our slide with a very short list of final statements. These pointing out not only that passage in Mark 16, 16, but also trying to maybe at least see a perspective on them that is perhaps slightly different than the one we've noted so far. Notice again that if these things join together matters of equal rank, and that's what the word and means, and our world has offered in such great strength to try and argue that baptism is optional, may I say that if they're joined by and, it must mean belief's also optional. It must mean repentance is also optional. Because remember, and joins things of equal rank. So if you claim one of them is optional, it must mean the other one is too. And yet who among them are ready to say that belief is optional? I've never yet seen an expositor say that. Who among them is quick to say that repentance is optional? Not one. Isn't it odd how that we, if we're motivated by some philosophy of our own, we can do such injustice to a simple word like and, and the things which it joins together. It is with that in mind, I chose to try one interesting thing, namely to diagram one of the sentences we've looked at tonight. A school person, all of us perhaps remember attempting to diagram sentences. Sometimes it was easy and sometimes it wasn't. I've asked you to look at the diagram of Mark 16, 16. You'll notice the word he is out to the far left. That's the subject. Right beyond it or right next to it is a vertical moving arrow that identifies a set of words that modify the word subject. May I ask, who then is it that shall be saved? It's a he, but who's the he? That's the thrust of the English language. The he that will be saved is the he that believes, and notice the word and, 
written vertically, which usually a diagrammatical presentation does for those words, but it joins together equal rank, the word believeth, the verb, and the other word be the other verb be baptized. In English as well as in Greek, the grammatical statement of diagramming is, at least in this case, pretty easy. May I say as we close the lesson, and simply means and. And the Word of God in using it, may I suggest, on the whole is rather simple. God has meant what He said and He has said what He meant. And when He's used and, He presents things joining them together of equal rank. May I say that as we've looked at the gospel plan of salvation by way of repentance and belief and confession and baptism, in various ways we know the Bible, as it joins them together with and, requires each one of them. This evening, as we've studied about and, I know it's a word so easy to read past and a word that is easy to perhaps overlook, but may we appreciate it occurs roughly 56,000 times in the Bible worthy of our reflection, worthy of our careful appreciation, and worthy of our understanding that men have often distorted it, sadly, very unfortunately. This evening, if there would be anyone in this assembly that might wish to come to the Master, maybe the word and, joining together certain things tonight, as in worship, as in the plan of salvation, reminds us that everything the Lord commands is our obligation. And when He has joined them together equally, it's our understanding that we should treat them that way and demand that we appreciate them in that same light. To say that plan of salvation then involves belief and repentance and confession and baptism is a delightful reflection on the Bible's presentation. But even for a wayward child of God, one who has walked away from the faith and now lives in disgracefulness and in sin, you can come back to your first love. As the church at Ephesus was told to do in Revelation 2, come back to your first love to die. And if we could be of help in that regard, we'd be delighted to pray with you. We'd be delighted to pray for you. If you would just wish for prayers of strength and fortitude, that too would be our privilege. If we can help in any of these ways tonight, may we use Anne to motivate us to follow the things that God has revealed and if we can be of help at the moment, let us know how we can do it while together we stand and sing.